the Silver Voices Project, which allowed for digitization and sharing of this archival audio, was made possible by a grant from the U.S. Institute of Museum and Library Services, grant number MA 30190681194. <clears throat> do you want to start with you? Do you want to start where where I came into pictures? Well, why don't we start a little further back than that, Mr. Lloyd, Mr. Frank Lloyd, that is. Yeah. Why don't you tell us what films you remember seeing as a boy, or even portions of a film, any fragments of recollection that you have from your boyhood? Well, the only uh, films that I can remember seeing were in England. Uh, French films, of yes. course. Uh, they were these trick things, you know, that uh, showed them go going to another planet. That's strange. That was way back in 1905, six. Yes. And um, that's about all I saw. They were played in the musical houses. Mm -hmm. That's the only time that I can remember seeing pictures. And then later you went off the stage, and then let's skip over that part since it's fully covered in the manuscript. Yes. And you tell us, Mr. Lord, if you will, how you got started in the film industry from the very beginning. I see. Well, I came to Hollywood, and Hollywood in those days was a little bit different than what it is now. I can imagine. Uh, it was, uh, you know, two hotels, this old head, and a very lovely bunch of orange groves. I enjoyed it very much. I liked it very much in those days. Well, uh, a chap came to my dressing room where I, in the theater where I was playing down in Los Angeles, and he was a, uh, his Bester Pegg his name was, he oh, was yes. a cowboy yeah. actor. He was making uh, westerns out of Universal. So uh, he said, why don't you come out and see us make a picture one day? I said, well, I'd like to very much. So he said, when? I said, when? To you. <laughs> so he said, well, tomorrow morning. I said, fine. He said, we've got a pretty good stuff. He said, I'm in a, uh, a war picture. You'll like seeing it. I said, fine. He said, I'll pick you up at 6 o'clock. I said, oh, okay. <laughs> so he picked me up at 6 o'clock, and we had breakfast, got on a streetcar, and went out to Hollywood. Uh, we were put piled at the studio, which was then on the corner of Gower Street, an old, old ramshackle building Universal was. And we were piled into buses and taken out to what they called the Universal Ranch. Mm -hmm. This is where they had all the animals, you know, and the elephants, the tigers, the lions, and the dogs, and the horses. And I, I really loved it. And they were getting ready to make this big civil war scene. And my friend said, look, while you're out here, you've got to be out here all day now, and you can't get back until I leave. Why don't you put on a uniform and get yourself three bucks? <laughs> and I said, all right. So they got me in a uniform. It was a, a, a Confederate uniform as, a, as an officer. And I filled in the morning leading my gallant men, sword in hand up the hills, charging the 
enemy and uh, feeling the guns going off back of me and off on the part of bone hitting my ear, you know. Well, after luncheon, we were served uh, mox lunches and it wasn't very good, but uh, we were hungry and we ate. Uh, I had to change into the enemy costume. So all afternoon, I was now chasing the people that I've been fighting with, <laughs> you see. So I got myself three dollars, but I'd fallen in love with pictures. <coughs> and later it was through uh, the good offices of uh, Lois Weber, who was a, the only woman director I've known of to be so prominent as she was in those days making the Rex pictures for Carl Lemley. And uh, <coughs> she liked me and uh, invited me to come out and play a scene, play a part. Well, I chucked up my job at the theatre, although I was only going to get five dollars a day for playing this part. And I started by getting married. Unfortunately, that made me late the next morning <laughs> in getting to Universal Studio. And when I arrived there, they'd had to give the part she wanted me for to uh, another actor. And But then she took pity on me. She said, look, we have another part. I'm sure you'll love it. And so they gave that to me, and it turned out to be a very nice part. So I went ahead working with them until finally I said, well, I can't go on this way, I'm married, five dollars a day is no good. And I was going out and working at night time in the little picture houses, you know, singing, in order to build up a, a reputable amount of money to take home. And uh, finally went into the general manager and said that I had to have a salary, at least forty dollars a week. And uh, he said, nothing doing, couldn't promise a thing, goodbye. So I went out and didn't slam the door, but I wanted to very much, and started across the street to where I was dressing, and uh, a man named Otis Turner, who was the head director of, of Universal at that time, said, hey, Frank, where are you going? I said, I'm going back to the theater, get away from this darn stuff. And he said, no, don't do that. Look, we, we've got to have a talk. Well, what happened? I told him what had happened. He said, come with me. He took me right back into the general manager's office. The general manager received him very nicely. And he says, uh, I want you to put him on salary at $40 a week under a contract, which they did. That's how I started in the business. You want to stop it? Yeah. So I was under contract at $40 a week, which made me feel much better. Uh, eventually, I was playing uh, heavies and character parts, uh, along with uh, Lon Chaney, who dressed next to me. When they couldn't get Lon, they'd take me, or when they couldn't get me, they'd take Lon. That's the way we operated. One day, the... Uh, 
director, Odistana, was taken ill, and I had to leave the company and go away. Then it was a case of finding someone else to direct the scenes. They tried to get William Worthington, who was rather a very good actor, but rather uh, timid about trying to direct. Eventually they sent for me, uh, the same general manager who turned me down as an actor. By this time I was getting $60 a week as an actor. And uh, he said, now they're going to let me direct this picture that was ready. And I said, well, what difference will that make in my salary? He said, none whatever. We'll give you the opportunity to become a director. See? I said, well, I'm sorry, but I, I wouldn't. I have to have something in addition. Very well, then, he said, I'll tell you what we'll do. We cannot raise your salary because you're only temporarily on as a director. You stick to your $60 a week as an actor, and we will give you $25 a reel for each reel that you finish, which looked like a cent for at least one reel a week. I said, Thank you, I'll take that. Well, that week I finished two reels. So my salary became $110 a week, which was the highest salary of the lot. <laughs> and uh, they called me in right away and cut me down to $100 a week. So I was going ahead and I'd, I made two or three little pictures, you know. Then back came Otis Turner, it looked fine and ready to make a series of pictures, the black box, uh, kind of a serial. So he said, Frank, you will play the heavy, of course, and it's a great part and so forth. That's fine. So I was reduced to $60 a week again <laughs> and made the first uh, episode. Uh, then came word from uh, New York put Lloyd back to directing, get someone else for part in Black Box. <laughs> so that was done by having me jump off the, a train when I, where I'd been arrested, jump off a train and presumably break my neck. And then I started directing. I went along very well and thoroughly enjoying myself and making some very nice pictures. I seemed to like them very much. I started the Lemley brand in addition to doing some of the Rex pictures. <coughs> and uh, until one day I realized that my cameraman and my assistant and my associates that were under contract to my company, the Lloyd Company, weren't receiving enough and hadn't had any raises. So I went to Bernstein again the general manager and uh, begged for a raise for these people. He said, nothing do it. I said, well, if, if you don't, I'm going to quit. I was not under contract at that time. So I said, well, go ahead and quit. quit. <laughs> so I said, all right, I quit. And two weeks later, I'm getting ready to uh, leave very discouraged because I said, well, I really jumped in where I shouldn't 
have, you see. We had a daughter at that time. When uh, I realized that Mr. Bernstein was through with the company and had been through at the time he accepted my recognition. When out came Lemley, Mr. Lemley. He came to me, greeted me very enthusiastically and complimented me and I said, well, I'm sorry to be leaving you, but he said, leaving? I said, yes. And I told him the situation. Well, the next day, the new general manager came to me and told me everything was arranged, all the men had been raised. Yes. So would I stay on? So I stayed on. Still no contract, though. And then I got a call from uh, Mr. Frank Garbett of the Palace Pictures Corporation, who had caught a picture of mine that he thought showed a lot of promise, a little two-reeler. And uh, they, he offered me, uh, I was uh, then of course I was getting my 100 a week, he offered me 200 a week. Well, I had to consider that one. And I told him I would, but uh, I didn't think I was going to go to him because I like Universal. They've been very nice to me. However, I promised to go down and visit him on his yacht at uh, San Pedro Harbor on the Sunday. We went down there and I'd made up my mind not to go with him, but I kept my word and showed up. They met me at the dock with a dinghy, and a motor dinghy, and I was taken out to the yacht, beautiful yacht. Mr. Garbutt turned my wife and daughter, the child, over to Mrs. Garbutt and Miss Garbutt, and took me aft down in his quarters. John unlocked the door and says, uh, it's the key, but it doesn't go back in there until you sign with me. <laughs> and uh, I said, well, I've come down here to tell you, no, I'm not going to be with you, so you might just well, open it up. Well, he argued with me and argued with me. Why didn't I want to go with him? I said, well, Mr. Garbutt, I understand you're quite a hard man to do business with. He said, in what way? I said, well, I just heard it. I know that you've made a lot of money in oil and all that sort of stuff, but it doesn't appeal to me, and I'm quite happy with uh, Carl Lamley, but you'll be more happy with me and all this sort of stuff. And I said, no, and he said, well, $250 a week, and that's a lot of money. <laughs> so he said, why don't you get your, have you an attorney? I said, yes. I had a good friend who was an attorney, but I, he wasn't my attorney. Mm -hmm. I said, yes, I have. He said, well, get him, meet me at my house now at 11 o'clock, and I'll have this contract ready for you, and he can tell you what to do. Well, the quick answer is, we met at his house. My friend said, sign, it's all right, see, and I signed the contract. That's how I started with Palace Pictures. Can you tell us a little about uh, production <coughs> conditions at that time? Mr. Well, Lloyd? at the time I was directing for, for Universal, my budget was uh, one dollar a foot. In other words, I was going to make a, a thousand foot picture. I got a thousand dollars to make it. I mustn't go over that. Yes. You see, of course. <coughs> later, I was spending a million seven hundred thousand on mutiny on the bounty and so forth. And you know what they they're spending today? Five, ten, yes. fifteen million on a picture. So it was a different business entirely. 
Of course, everything was cheaper. There was no sound. And that's why you could make them at that price. Did you go out on location much for these films? Oh, once in a while we would go down to Laguna, but not to, to any great uh, distance. You know. The bulk of the films that you made at Universal then were made where? Right in the... On the right in the studio or, or on the ranch. Yes. Were those mostly uh, open stages? Or? Open stage, all of them. They were. Mm -hmm. no, no, no lights. Yeah. And do you remember who your cameraman was at that time? Did you have one William, particular? William Foster. William Foster. He came uh, pretty well right through with you, didn't he, in that early yes, period? Yes, yes. And then when you went to Palace, was there much, uh, were production conditions very different there? Yes. Uh, much more advanced. We worked with lights. Uh, a different class of people, the stars. Anna Held and William, I mean, uh, 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 Dustin, Dustin Farnham, uh, Rita Jolivet, Constance uh, Collier. Constance Collier, mm -hmm. yes. Was there a particular reason for the uh, Palace assigning you uh, plays with these uh, very well-known prominent stage stars, Mr. Larger? Well, they had them under <coughs> contract, you see. And I was a new director, and as I say, Mr. Garbutt, God bless him, he... <laughs> thought quite well of me. Mm -hmm. And so they gave me uh, these people. I made some rather nice pictures with them. Uh, uh, Leonor Ulrich, you know. Oh, yes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> she was just a young girl. She was about 24 years of age then. Mm -hmm. But quite good. Yes. She was a Morosco star. Velasco. Mm -hmm. Alaska. In one of the films that you made with her, a film called The Intrigue, I noticed that yes. uh, Florence Vidor was in the cast, and it seems to me that King Vidor, her husband, played the chauffeur in that. Possibly. I forget. Now, very shortly after this, it looks as if in the fall of 1916, you went over to Fox. Can you tell us about that changeover? Yes. Uh, I went over to Fox in, was it 1916? Oh. Yes. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, Dustin, whom I directed uh, at Palace Pictures uh, told William Farnham, his brother, about me. And, uh, oh, by the way, uh, I had a full year contract with the Palace. Oh, yes. Uh, with Frank Garbutt. And uh, he, he offered me $300 a week for another year. Well, I said, no, I knew prices were going up, but I wanted more money. And I told him I wanted 400 a week. So he la laughed at me and said, nothing doing. So it came right down to the last day, and he came to my office as well. And I said, no. So I said, well, bye. I said, goodbye, sir. <laughs> and I left, and Dustin got me to go in and talk to their general manager, and uh, they put me under a deal for $400 a week to direct, direct Dustin. And I directed Dustin from 1916 to the early part of 1919, the latter part of 1918. Mm -hmm. And during that time, you made uh, two big specials in particular with him, plus uh, two Zane Gray specials, didn't you? Yes. <coughs> Can you uh, tell us a little bit about uh, A Tale of Two Cities and Les Miserables, Mr. Lake? Uh, well, A Tale of Two Cities, uh, as a story, not only was it uh, written by one of our great writers, but uh, I loved the story because I had played in it as an extra in the theatre as a young lad in London. Oh, yes. When uh, 
Martin Harvey, the great actor, was playing it. And uh, so I loved it. I used to watch that man play <laughs> Sidney Carton night after night. And so I took that on, loving it, and I think we made a picture that was true to Dickens. And then Les Miserables came uh, in 1918. 1918, Les Miserables came, and the war was on, and I uh, was registered, of course, for the draft, and I went, and, uh, <laughs> but we had started the picture. And I went and warned Mr. Fox that I was liable to be called at any time to go into the army. And he said, well, keep on, keep on. And I said, well, you get another director, get another director to stand back at me and watch what I'm doing. However, we finally got word that I was not to be called uh, having a wife and child. And as the government did not want to inflict themselves on uh, the uh, people, uh, that what well, it wasn't necessary to call. Yes. And I was held in abeyance that way. And uh, I was given a discharge, military discharge, temporary, of course. And I went on and finished making Le Miserable, which I loved. And no one, no one could make a picture of that magnificence without loving it. Oh, I'm sure not. Yeah. Uh, I forgot to ask you about Florence Vidor. Would you tell me a little bit about her in the Tale of Two Cities and also about King Vidor at this time? Oh, yes. Well, King Vidor and Florence, they came on when I was making, started to make uh, a Tale of Two Cities. I had a big crowds. Uh, we were only paying $2 a day, you know, to the extras in those days. Some only got a dollar a day and their luncheon, you see. And uh, so I think I had something like a thousand people in the Rue Saint, what we constructed, a replica of the Rue Saint Denis, you know, facing down oh, yes. to the Bastille. <coughs> <coughs> so we were making the scenes of the people attacking the Bastille, fighting over the walls, over the moat, you know, and uh, while I was waiting, I had a young man kept uh, bothering me by saying, here's your script, Mr. Lloyd, here's your script. I said, will you please put that script down in my chair? I'll know where to find it, you see. Well, you may lose it. I said, all, all right, all right, hang on to it. Uh, I found out his name was King Vidor, and uh, he followed me around all through the making of the Tale of Two Cities, getting his three dollars a day as an extra. One day I was uh, standing up on the platform looking down over the crowd getting ready for a scene and I saw a face looking up at me. At that time I was having quite a, a lot of trouble selecting an actress to play the part of the little seamstress in, in the story and we hadn't cast anybody as yet. Well this girl's face intrigued me and I said to my assistant, find out who that girl is down there and if she's had any experience. And my assistant, uh, that I finally am calling him, this King Vito, spoke up and says, yes sir, that's my wife and she's had experience. <laughs> <laughs> so I sent for her and she came up and, and at close view she was even more beautiful, 
than this at Longview. And I decided to put her in the part, of course. There was no talking. Uh, it was all silent. So I could take my time and photograph her beauty and her goodness. And from that picture, when the picture was released, she became the sensation. All the newspapers and all the periodicals sent out their best people to interview her and photograph her. How very fortunate yes. for her. Now, can you tell us a little about making a ride of the Purple Sage and the Rainbow Trail, Mr. Lake? Yes, we took both those stories on. Both were written by Zane Gray, as you remember. And uh, the uh, uh, Rainbow Trail uh, uh, was the, uh, the latter part, uh, the, the other part of the Riders of the Purple Sage, yes, years right. later. So we made the Riders of the Purple Sage in which he escaped with uh, the woman he loved and a child uh, into this valley and shut themselves off from the rest of the world. That's where it ended. By toppling a great rock. Wasn't that it? is right. Yes. And crushing the Tullinese gang of, of uh, Mormons, they were, mm -hmm. uh, who were closing in on them. Yes. And he closed the, sealed off the exit to the outer world. Well, then we went on with uh, Rise of the Purple Sage, where, where I had, I mean, Rainbow Trail, where I had to pick up Farnham with a beard and dressed in furs and dressed with the skins of the animals that he'd killed in this valley, and his wife and his daughter, who is now a girl. And, uh, it picked them up, went on where the conflict against them uh, went on from the outside because they'd found an entrance in another direction to come into this valley and that's where at that time the Mormons of course were being prosecuted by the federal government Yes. Uh, for uh, polygamy and so forth. Were both of these uh, shot in the same place? Mr. Well, uh, yes, yes uh, I made some of the uh, scenes of uh, Rise of the Purple Sage uh, on the Painted Desert and uh, some at the top of the uh, Grand Canyon. And while I was shooting that, I was shooting outside scenes to fit into the Rainbow Trail, which we were going to make later. Yes. So I tied it all in that way. Uh, in addition to directing William Farnham for Fox, I directed Gladys Brockwell, who was a very, very competent, excellent actress. From Fox, I went with Samuel Goldwyn, when it was the Goldwyn Film Corporation, before they made it into uh, Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer. Uh, while with uh, Mr. Goldwyn, uh, I had the opportunity to make some very fine pictures such as Woman in Room 13, Loves of Letty, The Great Lover, Madame X, uh, with uh, Pauline Frederick, uh, with the, uh, oh what was her name, uh, Letrous Joy, that's when she was uh, young and coming, and uh, the uh, great uh, singer, um, the, yes, uh, Geraldine Parra, and uh, 
I enjoyed working with the Goldwyn Film Corporation very, very much. I only left them at the end of my contract because they were having a lot of strikes and the trouble was going on. And so I left them and went away. And when I came back, I entered into a, a contract for, with Joseph M. Skank. Well, it wasn't a contract. It was, well, will you come over and work with me? And I said, yes. And that was the contract. Uh, that was a very enjoyable association. Not only Joseph Skink, but his very beautiful wife, Norma Tony, was really delightful. And uh, after making a, a picture of the Eternal Flame with Norma Talmadge, they went abroad and I was left uh, uh, to do nothing but wait for their return. However, I got busy and made Oliver Twist uh, with uh, oh, Sol Lesser. Sol Lesser was the producer. And uh, we had a lovely cast. We had. Uh, Lon Chaney, Gladys Brockwell. Gladys Brockwell was this really magnificent uh, actress. George Sigmund was a great guy. Uh, Aggie Heron, Lionel Belmore, Carl Stockdale, Esther Ralston, Gertrude Clare. They, they all seemed to fit right into the Dickens uh, uh, covers. I remember, of course, little Jackie wasn't six years of age. This is Jackie Coogan. Jackie yeah. Coogan. Yeah. Uh, he wasn't six years of age, and I was making a scene in the uh, uh, undertaker's establishment, and he was down on his knees scrubbing the floor, and another boy was sitting up uh, eating some candy on this uh, uh, bench, and he says, uh, uh, who is your mother? And little Jackie said, what? He said, who is your mother? And little Jackie had to come up again and say, my mother is dead, sir. But the first time he did it, I didn't like it because there was no feeling. So I went and I said, Jackie, for heaven's sake, you know, if uh, you spoke of your mother's death, it would affect you. He said, what do you mean? I said, well, you'd get a little tear in the eye or get moist or you'd feel it. So I said, all right. So we tried it again. Still no tear, still no feeling. So I went and I said, say, come on, what's the matter, son? Don't you feel this scene? Don't you feel? Just imagine it was your own real mother you're talking about, being dead. He said, Mr. Lloyd, can I think about my dog? I said, why, yes. We got ready, made the scene. The face came up, tears rolling down his cheeks. He says, my mother is dead, sir. I went and I said, did you think about your dog? He says, yes, sir. He was run over yesterday. It's a cute story. Yes. Another time, we were making a very, very, very hard scene with uh, uh, Jackie and uh, Lon Chaney and George Siegmund. Now, these two great actors were playing with this little boy. He went right through where they're forcing him to go out and help with the robberies, you know right up to the very end of the scene in which he was terrific with the tears rolling down and they dragged him out and when I said cut he turned around and says 206 feet Mr. Lloyd <laughs> he had counted the, the, the turns of the camera handle 
doing this terrific scene of uh, acting. By the way, Mr. Lloyd, how, how fast did they crank in those days? Um, let me see. Uh, sometimes they dropped down to 12, some, but it usually was 16. 16, yes. as a rule. Yes. Did you cut your own films at this period here? Cut them all the time. You did? Yes. Right up until uh, we went into the talkies. Then I didn't, because mm -hmm. that became a little involved, yeah. you see. Mm -hmm. But we used to cut our own negative uh, attached to what we liked of our positive. Then I'd cut the negative, you see. Yes. And ship that negative uh, back east for printing. Now, one other, uh, one other little story about Jackie. You know, uh, people were mad about him when he'd go into New York. My goodness, they'd crowd around him in mobs. And so the press threw a lovely banquet for him, and he showed up, but his mother, who was accompanying him, could not be with him. She was in bed. And so, in introducing uh, Jackie, uh, the speaker, and I don't know who it was, uh, said after introducing Jackie, he said, now, of course, we were to introduce to you the, uh, oh, how did he put that, the goose that laid the golden egg, but she's in bed, for real. They <laughs> 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 got a roar. <laughs> Would you expand a little bit at this point, Mr. Lloyd, on your method of handling the actors? Well, uh, the big thing, of course, I don't know, as I used any other method than the other directors. All I know is that when I went on the set, I was very conscious that the, the actor out there in front of the camera had a rather hard time playing his part without interference. I would never talk to them during the making of the scene, either silent or talking. But I always felt that we should put the actor at the top. That the director, the cameraman and property men should retire from them and let them play their parts. I would go into them before starting a picture or before starting a scene and talk it over with them, explain to them what I had in mind uh, but I'd always say you may have a little different conception and I'd like to know if you have and if they had I'd say fine well let's see let's see how it works out and let them use their uh, knowledge and ability as an actor or an actress to show me how they could improve what we had conceived. Yes. That's the only difference that I can see. Now let me see, Mr. Lloyd. <coughs> Continuing in this first national phase, and you made a film called Black Oxen. Yes. Black Oxen, of course, was a big seller. And any time you get a big seller, you can always depend upon a good show. That is, at the box office. <laughs> And uh, it was a kind of a fantastic story, you know, of the uh, monkey glands being transplanted into a woman. However, 
We got away with it because, again, I was fortunate in having a fine cast. It was at the time that Clara Bow was not up yet, but was around. And I cast her in the part of the little uh, teenager, the, the vamp, the little vamp, you know? And uh, Corinne Griffith played the lead. And she was really magnificent with her control over this woman uh, who looked about 25 and allegedly was about 60. Uh, she seemed to handle it magnificently. You could feel that through these eyes were the eyes of great experience, uh, even though she only looked 25 in features, which she was. Conway Toll played the lead, and Conway was always good. He was a uh, rugged uh, type, uh, rather flat at times, but it was effectively flat in uh, giving his uh, opinion of himself. And I thoroughly enjoyed making that picture. And then came the Seahawk, and I believe this was the first of the sea epics that you made, was it not? Yes, well, I had made, no, I had made... Uh, with William Farnham, I've made a big sea picture called When a Man Sees Red. <laughs> oh, yeah. And uh, that was quite uh, thrilling stuff in that sea stuff in, in the man, When a Man Sees Red. So I had had my experience with ships at sea, sailing ships. So when I made the Seahawk, I was fully uh, aware of what we were up against. And uh, I started it uh, uh, the, the day after Christmas. And I sent over my uh, galleon to uh, 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 the island, uh, Catalina, yes. to the Isthmus. And she was loaded down with all my supplies to, to establish the camp for my extras and so forth, with the beefs and the hams and coffees and so forth, and also all the costumes for the production. And uh, two days before Christmas, I'd sent it over, Commandant, Captain, and mate, and a crew. Then I got word that she had wrecked herself on the beach. And uh, so I flew over there in what we called in those days a speedboat. And sure enough, there she was, lying over, being washed against by the incoming waves. <coughs> And uh, oh, I had sent word that the skipper was not allowed to be uh, not allowed off the ship. He had to stay with the ship. I also ordered two tugs from the Wrigley Company. Got over there. We made an investigation. She was ground in the beach. Now we had to wait until the flood tide. And uh, uh, I told them to to stand by watching and to keep a line on her. Uh, a bowline and uh, it was at six o'clock the following morning the flood had happened and nothing had happened she would not come off uh, we, if we'd have gone any further we might have ripped her keel off trying to get her off and uh, but at six o'clock the following morning I was standing down there looking at her and cursing her <laughs> 
when all of a sudden I saw her stern weave a little bit and she'd roll and I yelled out to the two tugs to come in fast they came in they got lines on a fore and aft and no sooner had they done so when she just rolled over with a groan and floated and they were able to yank her away and just miss the outside rocks as she went through you know so we got away with that one <laughs> after that did the production go smoothly oh now and then we had troubles you know uh, little accidents we had a lot of fighting hand-to-hand -hand fighting you know over the side two ships locked together and uh, and I'm using scenes too I had the galleon with uh, Milton Sills, you know, chained to the deck down there as a slave, rowing with the other slaves. And I had a scene where a, uh, a Britisher came alongside and ran right along the side and then tied off and came over the side and started fighting, you know. And uh, oh, I had to show that when she came alongside, she ripped off these large oars. See, which would create a lot of havoc down among the the uh, slaves. Yes. And so uh, I decided to do that with a steel nose cutter come right alongside and rip them off, you see. Being a silent picture, you could do it, you see. And we were photographing right down on the, the hold, showing all the slaves pulling away, and when we pulled this. Now, before... I got ready to make the scene. I said, be sure that each and every man is chained to the deck. We can't have one leaping up and running. They must all be chained. So they were all chained. If the cutter went through. I've never seen such a shambles in my life. Head over heels, these, uh, the oars were yanked out of their hands, you know. And I was really scared when I could say, cut. And I ran down, I said, anybody hurt, anybody hurt, you know. And a big colored boy rose up, he was about six foot five, he says, no boss, nobody's hurt, but I just done stretch this chain two links. <laughs> <laughs> then we come to Winds of Chance. That was by Rex Speech, of course, always a good... He's a tough writer. Yes. <laughs> and uh, had a very good cast given me. Ben Lyon, Dorothy Sebastian, Anna Q. Nielsen, Viola Dana, Robert Bosworth. And I was having trouble trying to find a, a French-Canadian. And I looked all over the place. We had no one that really fitted this part. Until I went to the fights on Friday night. I always went to the fights on Friday night. It was my night out, and all of a sudden I was struck in the back by somebody going by me and nearly knocked me to the floor, and I looked up and this giant of a man was going by. And he turned and said, sorry, sorry, and went on. And I sent my friend to find out whether he was by any chance an actor. Yes. Next day, to make a long story short, I had him coming to see me. He wasn't working. I signed him under contract for a full year. And that started Vic McGlegelin. And he was always very, very gracious and grateful for it. The Splendid Road was also with Anna Q. Nielsen. Lionel Barrymore, God bless him. 
he uh, was a magnificent man. And Robert Fraser, that was a story of uh, California in the early days. We had a lot of fun and people seemed to enjoy it. The Wise Guy was a picture that I took on because it appealed to me at that time we had Amy Semple McPherson out here doing her stuff in a <laughs> church which re I resented every minute that I heard it on the air. So this followed along the lines of a phony preacher but it had a big psychological switch in it which appealed to me and we went ahead and I made it with James Kirkwood and George Marion Sr., the old great actor who played in Oh, Old Devil Sea, he used to, I forget the Anna name. Christie. Anna Christie. Anna yeah. Christie, right. Then The Eagle of the Sea was a very nice uh, motion picture, uh, a sea picture. Children of Divorce was the one that I really loved because it brought Clara Bow into a picture with me uh, where I'd had her in uh, uh, Black Oxen. Now she was a great star, the It Girl and she was delighted that we were going to be together and Gary Cooper shows up during his first dramatic scene in a star part. Well, we started but as we went along we were having a little more trouble all the time with poor Gary because they wanted him a little more forceful and so forth and the boy didn't really have it. Eventually they pulled him out of the picture, the the paramount people and I went about trying to find someone to take his place I spent a whole day on it then I finally said no I can't find him I'm going to find that boy but he was not at home his mother and father didn't know where he disappeared to and I went searching until noon and I took my assistant him who, who was with me into Henry's the restaurant and had a sandwich while we were sitting there I said you know, might as well sit here, he's allowed to walk in here as to walk along the street. With that, the door opened, in came poor Gary. <clears throat> he looked as though he hadn't slept in two nights, and I don't think he had. As he was going by me, he caught a sight of me and started to swerve, and I said, call him back, and told him that I wanted him to go back in the park. He said, oh, no, he said, I think you're making a mistake. I don't want to wear you out the way I have been. I said, you wor worry about yourself, not about me. Now, have a little lunch. I turned to my assistant, dismissed him, sent him back to get all ready to start again the next morning. And I put Gary in my car after we finished lunch and drove him down the country. And we sat beside a stream. And I talked to him about this part. <coughs> well, to make a long story short, the next day we started, and you know the answer, Gary entered into his own. That was that. Then we had adoration with uh, Billy Dove, very lovely girl, and it was rather a nice, uh, quiet, easy picture to do, and I enjoyed it, but it was nothing great about it. Weary River was, it turned out to be quite a great picture. It was a, uh, uh, it was a, a story of gangdom and of prison, and I selected personally the song that was sung in the picture called Weary River and as you know it became quite a success. The Divine Lady I loved. 
that was with Corinne Griffith, Victor Barconi playing Lord Nelson. But it happened to be my last silent picture. I thank God because Victor Barconi could not speak without a very strong Hungarian accent. Drag that I made with Richard Barthamus was a delightful comedy. I again thoroughly enjoyed making a, a, a semi-musical with Dick Barthamus. Dark Streets was a trick picture, a double exposure picture, photographing Jack Mulhall as his own brother and himself, and it turned out quite well. Young Nowheres was a very delightful picture with Dick Barthamus and Marion Nixon. Uh, enjoyed it very much. Wasn't a great seller, but it was liked. Son of the Gods was uh, quite a fantastic uh, a picture. It was uh, controversial and it went over very well. It was a Chinese picture uh, with Dick playing a Chinese where people loved it. We had a lot of good atmosphere in it and a lot of good drama. The Way of All Men, <coughs> I don't recall that very well. Uh, the Lash was with Dick Barthamus, and that was the story of early California with Dick playing the part of an early Californian. Uh, very good picture, went over very well. East Lynn, uh, I love that because it was a challenge to do, as we know many people have kidded about East Lynn, uh, such as, uh, tomorrow night we will play East Lynn. Well, I said the same thing to uh, Winnie Sheehan when he asked me to make it. And I said, oh, no. And he said, oh, yes. Now, look, Frank, you can, you can bring it up to date. You modernize it. So we went to it. We had a good writer on the job and great cameraman fine actors and actresses, Anne Harding, Clive Brooke, Conrad Naval, people like that, which made it really ring the bell, I think. The Lash, oh yes, we, we had that. Yes. The Right of Way, uh, John Sites, The Right of Way. No, I didn't like The Right of Way, so I won't <laughs> even discuss it. Right. Uh, uh, Age for Love, that's with Billy Dove, Charles Starrett, Lois Wilson. That was rather a nice small picture, but charmingly done by Billy Dove. Passport to Hell with Elisa Landy was a very strong uh, picture of the tropics and was liked very much at the box office. Cavalcade was a small picture that I took on. At least <laughs> a lot of people thought the, the title was small, one word, but it wasn't when we came to actually presenting it. To me, uh, I prefer Cavalcade as a picture above all I've ever made. I really loved it. That was with Diana Wynyard, Herbert Munden, uh, Ursula Jeans, John Warburton, Margaret Lindsay, Clive Brooke, Una O'Connor. Yeah, it was a great cast and turned out to be, I think, uh, an outstanding picture. Barclay Square was another one that I really loved. That was, of course, with Leslie Howard, Heather Angel, Valerie Taylor, David Torrance, and we had the opportunity of uh, doing it a little bit differently than what they had on the stage, and I think it, the public really went along with it. Hoopla was a, a fair picture with Clara Bow. I wasn't grand, uh, very greatly impressed with it, personally. 
Servant's Entrance was a very gay, cute picture with Janet Gaynor Luez. I really enjoyed making that. We had more fun. Mutiny on the Bounty. Now there's one you can talk about because everyone else has. I have never seen one man imitated on the theater, theatrical stage more than Charles Lawton uh, play, playing Captain Bly. They all seem to love uh, the picture. Charles Lawton, Clark Gable, Franchot Tone, Eddie Quillen, Donald Chris, Spring Byington, and many, many others. And I had a great cameraman, Arthur Edison. I enjoyed that. When I went down to Tahiti and made parts of it, so as really to get the colour of the islands. Ah, I think that uh, Mutiny on the Bounty will be remembered for a long time. Thanks to our audiences. Under Two Flags was a very, very interesting picture. I made that with uh, 20th Century Fox. And I had a great cameraman on that, Ernest Palmer. Ronald Coleman, Claudette Colbert, Victor McLaglen, Rosalind Russell, Gregory Ratoff, Nigel Bruce, Onslow Stephen, some great actors. Why couldn't I make a great picture? Hmm? Made of Salem, I made with Claudette Colbert. Uh, it was a, an experimental picture. I fell in love with the idea of doing a picture on witchcraft. A lot of people have written me and told me they think it's one of my best. Others think the reverse. However, that goes along with making motion pictures. Wells Fargo was something that I really took on because I've always loved the story of Wells Fargo. There's two great characters back in history uh, opening up transportation for the good of the country. And they did a lot of good. Joel McRae, jo rather, pardon me, Francis D., his wife, Bob Burns, Lloyd Nolan, Johnny Mac Brown, Ralph Morgan, and other characters in the picture couldn't help but do it a great job. I'm sorry, I made a mistake there. Do it a great job? You don't read lines like that. If I Were King, there was another one with Ronald Coleman. There, that man, Coleman, I'd like to speak a little bit about him. He stood out some way or other above a lot of others. He, he, he was a man in his own right. I loved that man very much and he always gave a great, great performance. Rulers of the Sea, that was uh, another sea picture I put on uh, showing the birth of steam, showing the first steamship sailing from England. Uh, it was light very much. Howards of Virginia uh, was adapted from a book called The Tree of Liberty. It was uh, a little bit uh, hard to do because uh, you had to avoid what people would classify today as possibly being red propaganda. And I was fighting that all the way through. However, it's turned out, it turned out very well and recently has been shown considerably on TV. Gary, Gary Grant 
was really superb in it, I thought. Lady from Cheyenne was a very, very amusing picture, in my opinion. And I think, although I'm more used to doing the big, heavy overlays, I managed to bring that one off with a, a little pat on the back for myself. I enjoyed it. Forever in a Day was a picture of which I undertook to control uh, in which everything was uh, by great English stars being done for the uh, British War Relief. And as I understand it, at least a million and a half dollars went to it from that one picture. Blood on the Sun, I made with James Cagney and Sylvia Sidney. James Cagney is without doubt a very virile, wonderful actor. And I enjoyed working with him. The Shanghai Story was one which I took on after being away from the picture business quite a number of years. It's the story of uh, the communists in China. Well, I've always said never, never start playing around with something you don't know anything about. But the story turned out very well and had a pretty good following. My last picture was The Last Command. Uh, it was made with Republic pictures and we spent quite a bit of money but we could not get any stars uh, why I don't know but we got some very fine actors like Sterling Hayden who gave a magnificent performance of Bowie in the picture and it's the story of course winding up with the the Alamo the siege of the Alamo and personally, I know it was a fine picture, but it didn't do the business I'd hoped. This interview has taken place April 3rd, 1958 at the Beverly Hills Hotel.